0: Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peak's downloadable messages and podcast. If you were here last month, we, we talked about what the Bible has to say about uh, sex, and we kind of saw that God has a very positive view of sex, which is very contrary to what kind of is commonly thought. And uh, today we want to talk seriously about what it takes to have good sex and, and, um, and kind of come at it because often I think when, when people teach about sexuality and single life, the, the, the initial thought is to come at it negatively. You know, just don't. Okay, that's it, end of series. Years ago, when I was putting together this series, I thought, you know, we, there's got to be a better way. I mean, we've got to come at it from a positive angle here because, you know, God is a good God, and so there's a reasons for His roles. And so, and so, we're kind of coming at it from a positive angle in this this uh, month's lesson, and and talk about well, what does it really take to have great sex? If God created it, if you put these fences around, there must be some reason. And I think it raises a more basic question, and I put the question there on your handout that we need to talk about before we jump into the the topic. And that question is: Is God for us? Or or against us? You know, I think that for many of us, and I would include myself uh, with you in this, that I think we struggle at times in our life with this question is God for us or against us? I mean, is He, is he, is he really good, thoroughly good, or is He holding out on us sometimes? And, and I think if you're honest, and, and I'm honest, there's times in our life we really question that, and uh, we struggle, and sometimes we wonder if he's really sort of a cosmic killjoy, just looking to see if anyone's having a little bit too much fun um, so he can make a rule against it. And uh, I, I think it's um, it's sort of understandable, because when you look at human life, there's a lot of things that we really would like to do or want to do that God says you can't do, and so it's a sort of natural that we'd question his goodness sometimes. And, and I think that's especially true when you come to sexuality because it's such a powerful and pleasurable experience. You know, anytime you have anyone saying, no, you can't do that, you just kind of, well, why not? And are oh, you really for us or against us? Uh, there in your note sheet, I put a quote by uh, C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. He, he says, Christianity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. There's no getting away from it. The old Christian rule is... Oh, sorry. sorry yeah. See, it's so unpopular. I can't even say it. Um, yeah. Yeah. you talk about misprints. Yeah. Now, the reason Christianity is so unpopular. No, that's something different. Okay. Chastity is the most po- unpopular of Christian virtues. <laughs> okay. Focus. Okay. There is no getting away from it. The old Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. And then he goes on. This is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts. And he kind of goes on with his argument. But it just, it is. It's very contrary to our instincts. And so it raises questions about God's goodness and is he for us or not. And so I think that before we, we jump into this, we need to lay sort of a groundwork, almost a theological groundwork, because otherwise uh, it's really hard to obey him in this area. And I think what the Bible would say is uh, this kind of the average man on the street, when you ask him about God's restrictions or God's laws or his rules, that the average man on the street sees them as restrictive. They're restrictions on our life. Whereas we turn to the Bible, God says, no, they are protections. They're not restrictions, they are protections. Now, much like uh, uh, little kids, we we have a long driveway. Those of you who've been to our house, uh, uh, we have a long driveway. And so when our our girls were little, they would ride their bikes. They want to ride their bike up and down the driveway all the way to the street. But we have high bushes all the way down the driveway. And so there's no way, when someone turns into our driveway, it happens very fast from a perceptive point of view. You just don't see it coming. And so we made this rule that girls could only go down certain uh, length. Now, they hated that rule because, you know, they thought that, you know, we were just kind of trying to restrict them, you know, trying to control their lives, when in reality, they just, as little kids, had no idea how fast a car could come around that, that corner and you could never see it. And often it's like that, that the Bible says that God's rules are protective. We see them as restrictive. I think a good example of this is the Ten Commandments. I mean, the Ten Commandments have taken a really bad rap. You know, it's people see them very much as a restrictive. But if you stop and think about it, uh, I mean, let's just kind of uh, run through some of those for a second. Um, right now we're all here. Uh, how would you feel about going home tonight and have someone who broke into your house and kind of stole your stuff while you were you're gone? Anyone feel good about that? No, I said no. So we we kind of like the rule about thou shalt not steal, as long as it applies to someone else, right? Um, Okay, how about this one? Uh, How do you feel about marrying someone and having them cheat on you? Anyone want to sign up for that? Some of you go, I've already signed up for that. In fact, that is why I'm here. Um, Yes. So, so thou shalt not commit adultery is something that we really embrace as long as we're the one who's getting committed against, right? You see what I'm saying? And so many times we look at the Ten Commandments as restrictive because we're saying, oh, we can't do that, not realizing, no, they're protective, that God is protecting us from the very things we would never want to have happen to us. You go through every one of them. How about the one, thou shalt not bear false witness? A lot of you have gone through a divorce, and you know the pain of, say, a custody battle where your spouse is lying in order to get custody. It's such a painful and frustrating thing, isn't it? And can you understand why God would say, I hate that. Thou shalt not bear false witness. I hate that when you do that. You go, yay, God. Until it's us who wants to lie, and then we're like, why are you so restrictive? You see You see what I'm saying? So because of our fallen human nature, we look at the laws and so we look at them, oh, they're so restrictive of me, not realizing if you step over the line and look the other way, it's like, no, they're protective of you. God's trying to create a world where people don't rip each other off, where they don't cheat on one another, where they don't uh, uh, kill one another, where it's safe to walk the streets at night at any time of day, man, woman, or child, and, be, and look at the stars at night. You see, God wants a world like that. And so God's rules are not restrictive, they are protective. And it's very important we catch this because when we come to the if we if we bring that bias into it, then when we come to his rules about sexuality, only for marriage, not outside marriage, then instead of saying how restrictive, it helps us to step back and say, "Huh, maybe that could be protective. You know, maybe there's a reason for this." And so what I want us to do today is to kind of roll up the, the sleeves of our mind, so to speak, and do some hard thinking. And to ask the question, if God has put such a high fence around this thing that is so pleasurable and so powerful, there must be a good reason. What might some of those reasons be? What is He protecting in our in our lives? I want you to look at one verse of scripture and then we're gonna to go to small group discussion. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter eight. Now, if you don't have your Bibles, shame on you. Yeah, I know that shame is supposed to be a bad thing, but I think it's a helpful tool. Um, Okay. uh, (laughs) Romans chapter 8. Now we're breaking in the middle of an argument, but we don't have time for the whole argument, so we'll just kind of break in. In Romans chapter 8, and Paul's talking about how God has predestined us before time to become to know Christ and all these great things. And then verse 31. Verse 31 says, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now catch the next line. He who did not spare his own son... But gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You see? Paul says every time you question whether God is for you or against you, you need to go back and look at Jesus and what God did in Jesus. And let that settle your doubts. And then go back to the thing about the rule that God says, you know, you can't understand why he would set that rule. And say, I may not understand this, but I bet I'm like a little kid wants to go to the end of the driveway. And someday when I grow up, I'll understand that rule. You see? And so we need to, 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 to bring that in. So we're going to be talking today about uh, this whole issue of uh, why does God say sex for marriage from a positive spin and, and talk about what, what does it take to have great sex. But before we do that, I'm going to let you talk about this a little bit. Inside of your bulletin is a handout, the quote that we used last month to kind of set the stage. Because last month we talked about what is the purpose of sex and we saw that one of the primary purposes for sex is what we called a uh, total oneness, a oneness at every level a oneness of body, soul, and spirit so to, so to speak and so I want to start with that quote just to set the stage and then we'll jump in and talk about what it takes to have great sex. Okay, sexuality uh, this is from uh, Burns and Whiteman in their book Fresh Start by the way which is sort of a, they're written for people who have gone through a divorce which is an excellent book by the way. Okay, sexuality it's a human potential for sharing one's life with another. It is the ability and the need imprinted upon our nature by the Creator to give ourselves completely to another human being. It is also the need and the ability to receive another person into our life completely. The romantic expression body and soul perhaps says it best. I have the ability and the need to give myself all of myself the body and soul of myself, to another person. I have the ability and need to receive another, all of another, the body and soul of another, into my life. This understanding of sexuality helps us to gain a correct understanding of sexual intercourse. It's the symbol or the emblem of the total life-sharing that God requires those who marry. In sexual intercourse, one person actually enters the body of another, an outward expression of what exists between the souls of two people who are totally committed to each other. Understood this way, intercourse is lifted out of the merely physical realm. This spiritual aspect is what makes sex unique in all of God's creation. So when we talk about the benefits of sexual purity or what it takes to have great sex, we have to start with what is the ideal? What is sex about? What is God's intention in sexuality? And what we learned last month is intention is this this kind of total oneness of body, soul, of permanent commitment to one another. That's what it's about. And so with that in mind, the next question is, well, then what kind of environment does it take to allow that kind of oneness to develop? You see? If God's, if God's goal for sexuality is total oneness, then what environment is best suited for that? Now, I want to say something very important because I don't want this to the back of your mind the whole time. Obviously, I am not saying that, therefore, if you get married, you'll have great sex. A lot of you were in marriages where there was lousy sex or no sex or too much sex outside the marriage or whatever. Okay? So being married doesn't... Cre- automatically create good sex. I just wanted to say that because always the whole time, does he think that, you know? No, uh, I understand that. But what I'm saying is what is the environment best suited to create great sex? And I, we're just going to go through some of the reasons, okay? What, what does it take? So number one. Number one, the first thing it takes to have great sex is what I would call emotional intimacy. Now, Patrick mentioned this. He talked about uh, it, it, that, you know, if you, if you have sex too soon, it can be a false sense of intimacy. Okay, let's talk about this. One of the marks of great relationships is what I would call emotional intimacy, the sharing of souls. And this is true of any great relationship. But it's especially true in a man-woman relationship, and it's especially impo- uh, re- required if you want to have a great sexual relationship. In other words, to to have um, intimacy physically without intimacy emotionally is sort of like licking the beaters of you know a chocolate cake and the frosting without eating the cake. Yeah, you know, I remember one year. I know I'm just getting off track, but one year. <laughs> I get up here and I just go, "Don't do this," and I just can't stop myself. It's this story has come. It's like they're not, like it's not in my notes, you know. There's got to be a 12-step program for people like me, speakers that can't say no. But uh, I, I remember this one time that we had a a growth group that we were in, like oh gee, you know, almost 20 years ago, Lynn and I, and, and we it was just a really weird group. And, and one night, for dessert, they, this couple brought a huge uh, dish, you know, a huge bowl. Of chocolate chip cookie dough, and passed out spoons. Now, now are you going? So, what's the problem? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing was, they knew that I loved chocolate chip cookie dough. And so they decided just to but you know, as a kid, you know, you used to, like, my mom would make a chocolate chip cake, I'm talking about chocolate chip, but just a chocolate cake, it was a great cake, and you know, I always lick the beaters or whatever, or lick the bowl, but I mean, you wouldn't just want like a bowl of frosting, you know what I'm saying? It's like, some of you are going, you would? Okay, man, well, I guess that explains the sex thing, but anyway, uh, <laughs> like, well, whatever, you know, it floats your boat, That uh, uh, no but you know really I mean it's really good for a while but after a while you know it's like you only take so much just pure frosting I and mean, you want it on a cake you want the whole deal and sometimes that, that trying to have one part of sex with the other part of sex it just it, it's a really it's a sweet thing you see you know it's like it was good I used to like those beaters or whatever but um, but it's not like <laughs> see I told you I told you Okay. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, the point is that if you want to have a great sexual relationship, it needs to be, there needs to be emotional intimacy as well as the physical intimacy. Now, there on your note know I put a quote here from Neil Warren's book, uh, Finding the Love of Your Life, yeah. and it's a good book. Uh, on, on, you know, I'd recommend it. But he says, Without question, the most important quality in a great marriage is intimacy. Uh, When you are intimate with the person you love, you create unlimited possibilities for the growth of your relationship. Intimacy has the potential for lifting the two of you out of the lonely world of separateness and into the stratosphere of emotional oneness. Conversely, the number one enemy of any marriage is a lack of intimacy. If two people do not know each other deeply... They can never become what the Bible calls one flesh. Now, see, we're, we're taking this quote, he's talking about marriage, but you're seeing what, the point here, is that, that intimacy and one fleshness involve so much more than just the physical. He says, if two people don't know each other deeply, they can never become what the Bible says, one flesh. They will never be bonded, fused, merged, or welded together. Without intimacy, they'll be isolated and alone, even though living under the same roof. Now, the, the kind of intimacy I talk about involves the sharing of that which is innermost for two people, their deepest thoughts, feelings, dreams, fears, and joys. It's when this core information is revealed that partners become acquainted with each other's inner working. So that's what we're shooting for in a great relationship. And the point is, when we don't connect emotionally at that level, but we try to substitute it physically, it is sort of like just the frosting and not the cake. They, they, there's a, there's an incompleteness. There's a lack to that uh, whole experience. Now, um, it's interesting. Years ago, I came across, uh, I was reading in a theological journal, uh, Psycho- Psychology Today, and uh, uh, that's a joke. Um, anyway, <laughs> when you have to tell people it's a joke, it's just like really a bad one. Anyway, um, there is amen. There was a, uh, an article, uh, it's a very creative title, called Joy With Your Underwear Down. And um, it was, uh, you know, okay. can we just move on? Um, all right, the guy who wrote it is a PhD, uh, probably, probably a psychologist, I'm assuming, uh, David Schnark, okay? Now, with a name like that, you're looking for a little joy in your life. But anyway, that's so story. All right, okay. Now... Um, Anyway, and this, it was a very long article. Again, I read the whole thing, and, and, and it was a long article. But what he was saying is that in the 60s and the 70s, kind of the basic feeling in our country was that, you know, we'd been very prudish about sex. And if we would just get comfortable about it, we'd talk about it openly, we practice it openly, then we would all be sexually very adjusted. We would just have these great sexual encounters because it was just, you know, it was sort of all, all on the table, so to speak. Okay. Now, he says, uh, I put this quote there for you to see... Uh, we, what he says, he says, we expected it to, to kind of create uh, sexual bliss in our country. But he says, we, we, ma- we must now face the difficult notion. Oh, this is a PowerPoint, isn't it? You don't have this one, do you? Okay, let's do it up here. Go ahead. You were right. We must now face the difficult notion that what many of us regard as our most meaningful sexual experiences are only a pale version of what we're really capable of profoundly transcendent communion with another human being. Now, David is not a believer, okay? He's writing as a psychologist, looking back in the 60s and 70s, saying, what did we learn? He says, we use the words intimacy and sex interchangeably, but they really do not mean the same thing. Ding. <laughs> in fact, in fact, we use one to avoid the other. What our confusion of terms does, however is make us think they often occur together for most people. So there's a huge difference between intimacy and sexuality. Um, and, And intimacy like this that he's talking about, it takes time to develop. It takes long walks, it takes long talks, it takes a sharing of souls over time, you see, to create that kind of intimacy. And the problem is, is that sex can derail, premarital sex can derail that whole process. Because what happens is you have a couple who are getting to know one another, they're spending time with one another, they're sharing their souls with one another. Once they start getting sexual, it's such a powerful experience that usually the emotional intimacy goes out the window and everything on a date is a prelude to when you end up in bed. And so what happens is there's this like an emotional um, uh, stoppage that happens. It's just a, 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 like the stopping of growth, you know, that just, it all ends because now it's all physical. And the danger is, is that it can create a false sense of intimacy. Remember we talked last month about sex is a powerful experience. It has the ability to bond people together. And so what happens is it creates a sense of bond, a sense of intimacy, but it is a false sense. It can be very deceptive. Uh, There in your note sheet, I put a great quote from the Parrot's book on relationships. Look at how they put it. Sex can bring two people closer together for a time. The problem with using sex as a means to more intimacy is that it soon becomes a substitute for emotional intimacy itself. Couples who put their sexuality on fast-forward short-circuit the normal progression of linking their hearts and souls. Now look at this next line. Research shows that the emotional bonding required for lasting love is most likely to move systematically and slowly through specific stages. Using sex to speed up that process doesn't work. Not for the long haul. A relationship that is to achieve its full potential requires emotional vulnerability. See what we're talking about, emotional intimacy? And countless private memories unknown to the rest of the world. Sex too soon keeps that from happening. It creates an illusion of intimacy that fades with the fires of passion. So don't delude yourself into thinking that sex brings you closer together in any lasting or meaningful way. It doesn't. You know, I saw. I was flipping around. That I'm kind of the kind of king of the remote control, you know, our place. And uh, and so Lynn always hates it because I watch like four things at one time. And she says she's like seen the beginning of 300 movies and never the end of any of them. And, and so uh, so I kind of watch it until I figure it out and flip around. You know. But anyway. So the other day I was flipping around and I came across that show Dawson's Creek. Now I don't know if you you watch it. You probably wouldn't admit it if you do. But anyway, um, yeah, you know, it's kind of a more of a teenager sort of show. And um, but I watched it because when I for about uh, ten minutes, because when I flipped around, they were talking about sex. And I knew the series was coming up, see so if I could learn anything. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I don't know all the characters, and some of you might know the characters, but I mean, I know Dawson It's Dawson's Creek, you know. So, anyway, as I listen to this dialogue, apparently, what had happened was there was this girl who had once dated Dawson, and of course, they'd slept together and so on, and and now it's the morning after she just slept with this new guy that she'd been dating for a short period of time, and as the story unfolds, uh, the, the story is is that he's been with, uh, I think it was four other women, he said, uh, in his life, and so. Uh, they're sitting there on the couch and it's it's obviously very strained between them. And they're having this conversation and it's there's like hostility and there's tension there. And and so he's talking about, you know, well, I think it was pretty great and everything. And and uh she's saying, Well, I, I don't really like being compared to other your other four experiences. You know, that's not what it's really about for me. And and she says, I, you know, he's like well, I'm really excited. He said, Well, I hope you don't tell anyone. and. Well, of course I want to tell people. And, you know, and, and so they're just having this hostility uh, between them. And at the end of that scene, she says to him, I always thought that sex was supposed to bring you closer together. And it's an interesting thing, because it does have the power to bring you together, but can also often be in a fake sort of way, a false sort of way. There can be a false intimacy that all of a sudden you wake up, and what you thought you were so close, there's nothing there. But the person's ready to move on. But of course they take part of you and you take part of them with you. Okay, well number two. Absolute trust. The second thing that it requires to have great sex is what I'd call absolute trust. And I'm talking about a specific kind of trust here. I'm talking about the trust that you will not leave me. Okay? That our relationship is permanent. That's what I'm talking about. Sex is a scary thing. Uh, it's a very vulnerable thing. In fact, there on your note sheet, I put a quote from Dr. John uh, uh, Gottman. Gottman done a lot of uh, writing in recent years on, uh, 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 on marriages and what it takes to make a marriage work. And uh, uh, he's a very respected researcher, and he wrote a book recently called The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. But look what he says. He says, no other area of a couple's life offers more potential for embarrassment, hurt, and rejection than sex. Now think about that. He's talking about married couples. No other area of a couple's life offers more potential for embarrassment, hurt, and rejection than sex. Now, if that is true in marriage, how much more true is it outside of marriage? See, sex is sort of a disrobing. There's a disrobing that obviously goes on on a physical level, but there's also a disrobing that goes on on an emotional level. There's a vulnerability. There's an opening up of myself to another person. And that can be a scary thing. And and for it to work right, you need to know that that person will be there tomorrow. You need to know that that person will be there for all of your tomorrows. See, that creates an environment whereby you can truly open up yourself and you can trust themselves to you. If you are not so convinced about that, then you can't open up, you can't share yourself, and, and, and you just leave yourself in a very vulnerable uh, position. Um, and without this kind of trust and this kind of commitment... Um, what happens is sex tends to become much more performance-based. And what I mean by that is that since you're not sure if this person is going to be there tomorrow, it's very important that you perform well so they are there tomorrow, right? Um, f- for women, it tends to be, am I desirable? That, the deep fear driving is, am I Am I desirable? For men, it's usually more of a competence issue. Am I a stud? Did I do well? You know, did I, did I achieve, you know? Um, but either way, it, it's a performance-driven situation where I need to prove my worth to you now because if I don't prove my worth, then maybe you won't stay with me. Does that make sense? It just creates a performance-based thing. And the hard thing is, is that none of us can perform well when we're under pressure. And that's kind of pressure. I mean, the whole thing is sex needs to be a thing where there's a freedom to explore, a freedom to, uh, to give, a freedom to learn, you see? And, and when it's performance-based, it's just not the best environment uh, for it. And that's why marriage creates the best environment or can create the best environment for that kind of trust. And that's why lovers, Why when people fall in love, what do they always say? Oh, I want to be with you, What? Forever. Why do they say that? Because it's a longing in our heart. It's a huge hole in our heart. We want someone who is with us forever. And if we have forever, then we have the security we need to grow in that relationship, right? Okay. Look at your note sheet what Dan Allender and Trimper Longman say in their marriage book, Intimate Allies. Why does the Bible confine sex to marriage? Is it a killjoy book, hating any human pleasure? No, sex is reserved for marriage because God, the one who created sex for human enjoyment, knows that sex is more than a physical act. Sex is a physical reflection of what takes place on the level of the human soul. It intimately unites two bodies as a reflection of the union of two human souls. This level of union and vulnerability can be entrusted only to people who are committed to each other for the duration of life. Now catch this. Sex draws to the surface a deep potential for loneliness and impotency, less physical and far more relational. And those great dangers, loneliness and failure, require a safety net of durable quality or one will never risk the depths of the heart in the relationship." See? So we need emotional intimacy. We need absolute trust. Number three, third thing we need is high respect. There needs to be a high level of respect between the two people. You know, you can't have a good relationship without respect. It, it's, any great relationship is based on respect. It doesn't matter what it is. There has to be a high sense of, I respect you. And it doesn't matter whether it's a friendship, or if you want to have a good relationship with your uh, kids, or, or uh, family members, or a, a romantic relationship. It's always based on respect. It has to be high level of respect. And that is especially true in the sexual relationship. There has to be a sense, I really respect you, and I value you as a person. And because when we sense that we are valued as a person, then there's a whole freedom that brings to the sexual experience. If, if someone looks at us it, like, I don't really value you as a person. I just want to use you. Well, then suddenly the whole sexual experience changes, doesn't it? it the meaning goes out of it. Now, uh, so, so respect is needed in all of life, uh, all relationships, but especially in the sexual one. And the, and the fact of the matter is that uh, for most people, Uh, Even non-believers, the people who sleep around a lot, lose respect. And and others will look and they'll say, you don't even respect yourself, so why should I respect you? Now, it's interesting. I understand that not everyone looks at it it that way. But it's interesting, even in the secular world. You know, last month, I I mentioned a book called The Return to Modesty by this young uh, young Jewish woman who writes for the uh, Wall Street Journal and so on and New York Times, and she's a journalist named Wendy Shalit. And I want you to just listen. Just, you don't have this quote, so just listen to this. It's kind of a long one, but it, it talks about this whole issue of respect and sexuality. It says, a, a 1998 issue of Glamour reports that catches 49% of women wish they had slept with fewer men. Now, this is non-believer, you know, Glamour. I mean, it's not exactly, you know, Christian reading. Um <laughs> Okay, so 49% wish they'd slept with fewer men, compared with 7% who wish they'd slept with more. Okay? 44% happy with the number as it is. Now, those who are happiest were generally those who, like Nina, who is 30, had one partner, her husband. A secular deal here. I honestly feel sorry for women who haven't experienced the thrill of having only their spouse as a sexual partner. As for the majority of women who are unhappy with their sexual experiences, they were for the most part like Ellen, age 29, who said, "Quote, I wish I hadn't given so much of myself. I feel that some of my experiences thinned my soul." I love it. I've used that I've used that phrase myself before, and I, the first time I saw it in print, but thinned my soul. And, and such an effect takes time to undo. She had 23 partners. The response to this article was tremendous. A 21-year-old woman from Montreal wrote, wrote in that she had had 17 lovers. The reason that she was, quote, looking for comfort in my first year of college. A woman from Providence, Rhode Island, with four new partners in the last five months, was, quote, worried I was losing my real self. Another woman from Bowie, Maryland, wrote that, quote, between my two marriages, I slept with 20 men. Now I'm infertile, and my healthcare provider, and I suspect that I may have chlamydia. She wishes, she writes, that she'd had a little less independence and a lot more peace of mind. I think even in the secular community, there is a sense that when we sleep around, we are lowering our value on the market. You follow me on that? It's a sense of oh she sleeps with anyone so you know or he's he'll with anyone so it's no big so there's a sense of a lowering um, of our value. There in your notes, she I put a quote from Tamara Lowe uh, from the uh, a tape series she did dating, mating, and relating. Uh, do you, do, she just said, puts it real bluntly. Do you want to marry someone who slept around with a lot of people? Well, neither does your future partner. You know it's just kind of the way it is. Years ago, I met a man named uh, Rick Stedman. Rick was uh, a singles pastor for many years. Uh, he didn't get married until he was you know, his earlier, mid-30s or whatever, and so he was a single pastor as a single man. And uh, he wrote a book called *The uh, Pure Joy, The Positive Side of, Human, uh, of Single Sexuality. He tells a story in that book um, that's sort of a parable. It's a true story of a woman he knew, but it sort of serves as a parable. Yeah, we want to not have this on yet. Yeah, thank you. Um, as a parable uh, of of sexuality for single adults, and I just want to tell you the story. It's a true story. It's a, a woman he knew named Pearl, and Pearl owned uh, was a, a kind of a middle aged lady. She was, happened to be single. She owned an antique shop, and in the antique shop, she was trying to clear it out. One day, she had too many things, and she had this one beautiful uh, table. It was an oak table, solid oak table, worth probably a thousand bucks. But she'd had it listed there for $500 for a long time, and it hadn't sold. And, and so she put it out in a more prominent place and moved it from $500 down to $400. And, and so a man came in by the name of Ted. And he, uh, he liked the table. He looked around for a while, liked the table, came up. And he said, you know I, I really like that table. How about if I give you $300 for it? And she said, well, no, the table's $400. They just marked it down from 500 And he, he said, uh, I know, but you know, I, I think it's worth more than $300. it has got the scratch on it here, scratch on it there. And she said, well, yeah, but, I mean, it's like solid oak table. you can't even buy tables. Like, it's worth way more than that. And he said, yeah, but I have to refinish it. And she said, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's worth it. This thing is worth it. And so they go haggle back and forth. And finally, he says, you know, if you just change the price on this table, I'd buy the table. And she thought about it a minute. A little grin came on her face. And she said, OK. She scratched out 400 and she wrote 600 <laughs> He said, What are you doing? You can't do that. She said, Yes, I can. It's my table. And this conversation has reminded me how valuable the table is. So he gets this little grin. And he starts he says, Well, you're very shrewd. And he says, OK, you win. I'll pay you your $400 for the table. She says, It's not for sale for $400. It's $600. He's like, No, really. She said, No, seriously. This table's worth right with 1,000 bucks, you know? And you may not recognize its value, but someone will come along who will. And I'm going to wait, because in the meantime, I'll have a great table. And so then Rick says in his book, and then we'll go ahead and put it on now, put this quote on now. I want to follow it just like he says it. He says, singles quickly understand that the way the, way the table gets treated depends on the price it is sold for. And they make the connection that the treatment they receive in relationships depends on the value they place on themselves. For instance, consider if Ted had paid only $300. After he had done the table two weeks, one of his children places a glass of water on the table, leaving a ring. What's his reaction? Oh, no big deal, he thinks. It's not a very expensive table. Doesn't have a very good finish anyway. But if Ted had paid $600 for the table, he will snatch the glass immediately from the ch- child's hand and say... Don't put the glass on the table without using a coaster. That's a valuable table. I paid $600 for that table. Treat it well. The same is true in relationships. The kind of treatment we receive is directly related to how cheaply we sell ourselves for or what kind of treatment we hold out for. If we allow ourselves to be treated poorly, we will receive poor treatment. If we hold out for better treatment, we will eventually receive it. See, it's not the value the man placed on the table that mattered most. Instead, it's the value the saleswoman put on the table and held out for that determined how the man would treat the table. By the way, he did buy that table. He came back and he bought the table. Okay, so what's the point here? The question is, what price have you placed on your table? What price have you placed on your life? What price have you placed on your body? You see, the Bible says that we were bought with a price and that you are a treasure to God. You have incredible worth. It says to honor God with your body for you've been bought with a price. The question is, what price do you place on your table, on your body? Are you sort of like a a Walmart table? You know? Kind of a Kmart blue light special table, you know? We're going to mark it down here. I'm getting tired of no one buying this table, so I'm just going to mark it down. Hope someone buys the table. <coughs> or are you sort of a Nordstrom table? That you are a great treasure and that you're willing to wait until someone comes along who's willing to pay full price. See, lots of times people come into our life, they want to buy us, but they say, I, I would love to buy you, I don't want to pay full price. I, don't want to, I, I want your body, but I do not want to pay the price of commitment. So how about if you mark down your price a little bit? In fact, I will buy you on credit. <laughs> how about if I take you now and then I got 12 months to pay you know how about, how about if we live together now and see if it works you see so give me the goods now and then if it works I will buy it down the road you do understand that people who live together have a way higher per, uh, kind of divorce rate than people who don't before they marry it's like exactly the opposite of what you'd think. So someone comes into our life and we're afraid that no one's going to come and pay full price to this table. So we either mark it down or we buy it on credit. We let them buy on credit. And what happens is, then you get treated with the price that you paid for yourself. That's exactly what happens. You say, I don't value myself. I'm willing to give you myself. I'm willing to give you myself. For $300, bucks, i will be a $300 table. Just take me off the floor. Well, that's great. Then don't come complaining later when they treat you like a $300 table. It didn't cost them anything for you, you see. Okay. Look at what Cloud and Townsend say in their book, Dating. Another good book if you're looking for good reading, Boundaries and Dating. What's the lesson here? It's that sex is set apart for a purpose and has great value. It is for lifelong commitment, needs to be esteemed. It is the highest value that your body possesses to give to someone you're in a romantic relationship with. In a physical and spiritual sense, I love this, it is all you can give someone. It is all you have. Therefore, it should not be given away lightly. Don't throw it away. Give it to someone who is going to give himself to you forever. Otherwise, you will have spent all that you have and maybe have nothing to show for it after the music has died. Powerful stuff. OK, number four. fourth thing it takes to have great sex is um, what I call strong character, and especially self-control. If you want to have great sex, then you need strong character or self-control. And the reason because of this is that if, as you're picking up, the great sex is a product of great relationship. I hope you're kind of picking that up. That there is no such thing as great... So I'm not saying you can't go out and have an empowerful sexual encounter without relationship. Obviously, you can. not <clears throat> But you can't have a great sexual relationship with the intimacy and all that kind of thing. You can't do that without a great relationship. They, they just don't go... It uh, doesn't work like that. And so if you're going to have a great sexual relationship, then you have to... It takes a person of strong character to have that with. You know, a couple of years um, ago, I did a series, uh, some of you were here then, called uh, Character, The Secret of Great Relationships. And the basic premise of that series was it takes chemistry to start a relationship, but it takes character to make it last. And, and so it's, it's one thing to fall in love with somebody, um, but it's not thing to make that love last. And, and what determines it is character. It's things like integrity, and responsibility, and honesty, and faithfulness, and truth-telling, and empathy. And it's that stuff that makes a relationship last. Well, can I tell you something? That the core of character, if you boil it down, the core of character is all about self-control. If you have to say, what is character all about? At the, at the core of character is all about self-control. It's the ability to say no to yourself and to say yes to what is right. That is the core of self-control. You take away that ability, there is no character. That is like the heart and the soul of what character is about. And you see, there's no greater training ground than to develop your character than in your sexual life. Because since the passion and drive is so strong, if you can learn how to control that part of your life, Boy, you just have really built a lot into your character and become the kind of person that it takes to have a great relationship and then they can have great sex in that relationship. Uh, Cloud and Townsend, they're in their book, Boundaries and Dating. I was going to read this because they put it really well. It's a long quote, but it's worth it. Let's follow it. Uh, There are a few better tests for whether or not someone lives a life in submission to God than what he or she does with her sexuality. Kind of a few better tests, they say. Sex is such a powerful and a meaningful desire that to give it up and obey God in this area is a true sign of worship. It's a true sign that someone is willing to say, not my will, but thine be done. And that becomes important for a serious reason later on. Here we go. In a long-term relationship, you want to be with a person who knows that they are not God and always places themselves in a position of submitting to God? What if your spouse, for example, is angry and wants to punish you or strike back at you or in hurt or, or revenge? Or is tempted in the area of lust or addiction? Or wants to blow off all responsibility and revert to a carefree teenage life? Or is tempted not to pay their taxes? If that person is a ruler of his or her own soul, what is going to stop him? If he or she is a person who, no matter what the temptation is or the desire of the flesh, can be counted on to say, not my will but thine, then you are with a safe person. But if you're with a person who does does it God's way only as long as it doesn't interfere with his or her desires then you are with a self-ruled person and you will always lose. Now, catch this last uh, paragraph. We cannot overemphasize the value of picking a person who has the ability to delay their own gratification. If you're with somebody who ultimately has to have what they want when they want it, you are in for a long time of misery. Boundaries with sex are a sure-fire test To know if someone loves you for you. Now, I want you to catch this. Have a great relationship, you have to have self-control. If you want to have great sex, you have to have great sex with a great relationship And one of the best ways is that develop self-control. So if you're in a relationship with a person that doesn't have self-control, you're in for a bad relationship, and bad relationships don't produce good sex. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So you see how it's like it all ties together. Okay, now number five. The fifth thing it takes is uh, time and practice. (laughs) 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 If you've got the time, no. Okay. uh, (laughs) Okay. time and practice now there's a a natural there's a myth out there that sex is just a natural thing and it's kind of fostered by Hollywood and so you know that the couple sees each other across the dim lit candle lit room and they their eyes lock and they pair up and they go for a tumble in the sack and it's just pure ecstasy and that's kind of how Hollywood often presents it But the reality is that sex is natural. The drive is natural. But the development of a good sexual relationship takes time and practice. And and it's like, usually when I say it, most people go, oh, that's really true. But it's like, no one ever says that. But it's sort of a learned sport. You know what I mean, it's sort of, OK. Remember that article by David Schnark I mentioned earlier? Uh, Joy With Your Underwear Down, who could forget that title? Okay, uh, look there. I put this quote on your note sheet. He says, in my 16 years as a sex therapist. Now catch that. The guy is a sex therapist. He talks to people every day about how to have good sex. right. So I have found that the naturalized view of sex is not so liberating as it once appeared. It pressures people to have sexual desire and genital response, while it makes worrying about sexual performance seem inappropriate. Like, you know, what could be the problem? It's the most natural thing in the world. So what's the problem? Okay, And it obscures what is quintessentially human about sexuality, our capacity for intimacy. Now, catch this. The sex that comes naturally is reproductive sex. Intimate sex, however, is a learned ability and an acquired taste, you see? In a good marriage, sex gets better and better and better with the years. Why? Because the couple is learning how to connect better on every level. They're learning physically what the other person likes, how how they they kind of do the dance the best way in their relationship. It is a learned thing. And so you need to be in a relationship that provides the security for that, for the time and the practice of that. Dan Allender and Trimper Longman, I mentioned their book earlier. Look what they say. Contrary to locker room uh, humor or slumber party boasts, sexual expertise is learned over time after repeated trial and error. It is God's intention that sexual experimentation through trial and error occur in a bonded married relationship where inexperience and awkwardness have the safety net of covenantal commitment and love. You see? And so it, it takes that. So, what this stuff says, so you put all this stuff together and you say, okay, now it starts to make sense. They're going to have great sex. You need, you need a place where there, there is this intimacy emotionally. You need a place where there is this trust. And you need a place where there's high respect. And, and you, you kind of see where we're going with this. And so you, you kind of start saying, well, maybe God does know what he's doing. You know, maybe, maybe it, it, it is protective and not restrictive. It's been interesting, though. In the last 10 years, there have been several major studies done, secular studies done, on kind of like who has the most sex and who has the best sex, bottom line. And, and uh, like one of the most famous studies was in 1994 by the University of Chicago researchers. It was the best and most authoritative study done in the last 40 years. Everyone agrees on it, that it's the best study, best research methods and the whole deal. It's In many ways, it's probably the best of all time, but for sure the best of the last 40 years. And you know what they found out? They found out that the people who had the most sex and the best sex were what they called people with conservative religious beliefs. Sounds kind of like Christians to me. Now catch this, that they had sex more frequently than any other people in their survey and that the percentage of women who said that they always experienced orgasm with their primary sexual partner was the highest among conservative Protestant women. In 1992, another study done. This study was called uh, Sex in America, a definitive survey by a group of researchers from the University of New York. And the man John Gagnon, who was one of the the writers there, well, before I go to him, what, what, the, what, the, what the study uh, discovered was that marriage couples had the highest rate of sexual satisfaction, which was 88%, and significantly higher rate of orgasm than single women. And look, look on your notes today. put what John Gagnon said there, one of the study's authors. He said, the marriage effect is so dramatic that it swamps all other data. Pretty strong statement. Another study done about the relationship between sex and prayer. And this study uh, discovered that couples who pray together have a better sex life than those who don't. In fact, in one study, couples who pray together were 90% more likely to report higher satisfaction with their sex life than couples who don't pray together, and that the women who pray with their partner tend to be more orgasmic, according to the study. Now, over and over, research is telling us what the Bible has said all along that it takes a certain environment to have great sex. And we've talked about five of those things, you know, emotional intimacy, the trust, the high respect, the strong character, the time and practice. And here's, what, here's my challenge for you as we wrap this thing up. Is that for many of you here, or at least some of you here, you're at a place in your life where God is speaking to you. You see. That what you have done is because you're afraid your table won't get sold or whatever, you have marked down the price on your table. Thinking that life will be better if you do it. And the 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 problem is, is that you're ripping yourself off. You see? And I want to challenge you as we go through the series. You know, next month, we'll talk about, we're going to talk about the flip side. Today, we talked about the positive side. The flip side next month is the high cost of sexual morality. We're going to look at it from the negative side. Okay, so we've looked at the positive benefits this way. Let's look at the negative effects. What happens when we break God's restrictions? We'll put on that, those lenses and come at a different angle. But my, my hope and prayer for you would be for many of you, that maybe for the first time in your life you start taking God seriously. That there's something that I've said, something the Holy Spirit said to you, something that, that just clicked. It said, you know, here tonight, I'm going to draw a line in the sand. From this point on, I am buying into this. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm buying it. I'm not going to compromise. And you see, if you do that, then God will begin to heal and that thinness of soul we've been talking about, he can begin to thicken your soul again, you see. And prepare you for what he has for you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time. And uh, thank you for uh, this topic. And it's certainly an important one. And we just want to give ourselves to you and uh, really be obedient and open. And Lord, we pray that you take these things, apply them to our heart, make them very real to us. Give us the courage to embrace them. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening.